Yeah, let's read together Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter, though I plan to just give attention uh, to the last handful of verses this evening. Again, he, that is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then... When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And, and he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given." And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And, he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And, he said... With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, 
let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Remarkable stories from Mark. Wonderful gospel truths that we're familiar with. It really is, chapter 4 contains what appears to be a day in the life of our Lord. It begins in the early part of the chapter. Jesus is teaching, and you, you may have noticed the refrain, and he said to them, and he said to them. It's as if Mark's getting tired of writing it. He's getting tired of Peter telling him about that day. Peter, who was more than likely telling Mark everything that had happened as an eyewitness. And he just continues. And Jesus just kept pouring truth into his people. And then at the end of the day, he says, in verse 35, let's go over to the other side. I've titled the sermon, Settling Stormy Seas. I have found over the past week of looking at these last several verses of Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, wonderfully encouraging. Far more than I ever thought I would at the beginning of the week when I started studying them. Because it's a story that we're all familiar with, right? You're in the boat, storms around, you wake Jesus up, he settles the storm, all is well. I found with taking a closer look at it and seeing it in context that it was far more valuable and encouraging than I ever imagined it to be. In fact, when I got up this morning, I didn't actually know what I was going to preach tonight. Uh, I'm preaching through Mark at um, my church. And so I preached this sermon this morning. And when we got home from lunch, we eat lunch together every week, as well, not every week, but first and third Sunday. So we had lunch today. And we got home and I told my wife, like, I'm still up in the air. I've got a few things on my mind of opportunities and directions to go. I don't know what to do. Maybe I should preach what I preached this morning. And she said, yeah, I think you probably should. So if you're not helped this evening, it's my wife's fault. So, um, the central theme of the kingdom of God, with a quick reading of Mark chapter 4 that we've just done, we might be led into wrongly assuming that the theme has a lot to do with people's response to it. That's what a lot of the chapter is about, the parable of the soils especially. It's how people respond. I mean, Jesus is telling his disciples, this is how people are going to respond to me. In essence, he's telling them, this is, this is how people are going to respond to you. He's telling us, this is how the world's going to respond to you as you preach truth. There will be some that will not hear it at all, and the devil will just pluck it away. There will be some that will sprout up fast, but they're not going to last. There'll be others that it'll come up, but it'll be choked out by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. 
But there will be some, and you can take courage that, that the word, the seed, will sink into their souls and it will produce real fruit. But even the, the four quick parables after that, the, the lampstand and the measure and the sower and the mustard seed, that there are these themes around the kingdom, the, the miraculous expanse of the kingdom, the advance of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, the development of the kingdom. But when we get to the very end of this chapter, as we see Mark wrapping up this day in the life of our Lord, we see that really the central theme of the kingdom is not about its expanse or its advance or its success or lack thereof. The central theme of the kingdom of God is the king himself. It all culminates in this glorious question in verse 41, who then is this? It's a familiar story. It's a wonderful story. It is primarily a story about the king, about Christ. On that day, verse 35, when evening came, Jesus said, let us go over to the other side. Keep that in mind. Jesus initiated this venture across the lake. It would have been about a six or eight mile journey, depending exactly on where they were and where they were headed. It's not a very big lake, the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus initiated the trip. Not only did he initiate the trip, but he ordered the weather for that trip. Psalm 107, 25, for God spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. So we have Jesus, who is the king, who has been teaching all day, who says, let's go to the other side, initiates the venture, controls or orders the weather. What do we take from that? This Christ is in complete control of every aspect of our lives, even, or we may say, especially the storms of life. He is orchestrating them, initiating them, but not without purpose. He's not merely standing back and leading us, guiding us from a distance through the trials, but he's coming alongside us, taking us by the hand in the boat using this story here and leading us through them, going through the trials with us. I've split up the text into three different points just to make it easy for us to walk through together. The scene, verses 35 through 37, the scenario, verses 38 through 40, and the Savior in verse 41. The scene, the scenario, and the Savior. Jesus said, let us go to the other side. They left the crowd on the shore. They took Jesus. The disciples took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was. No time to go back, grab anything, clean up, nothing. They just went. He's teaching from the boat. They head to the other side. Other boats were with them. We'll come back to that little phrase later. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much so that the boat was filling up. Now, these are the disciples. We know already from the previous chapters in Mark that four of the folks on the boat were professional fishermen. At least two of them, if not all four, had grown up on the Sea of Galilee. They have sailed stormy seas before. But this storm is not like other storms. For, for some reason, they're dumbfounded, and it has to be the magnitude of the storm. The Sea of Galilee 
is, is quite different than most other seas or lakes. The surface, that is the top surface of the sea, is actually 600 feet below sea level. And it's also surrounded by mountains. And in these mountains and hills, there are great rifts, some waters feeding into the sea, and others are large enough that it's serving like a wind tunnel. And, and the wind is coming in from different directions and spiraling down and creating these great storms. The Sea of Galilee was known for storms. Peter, Andrew, James, and John would have been in storms before. But this storm is not like others. The Sea of Galilee is not the only place that's like this. You may have heard of the Great Rift Valley. It runs from the Sea of Galilee over 4,000 miles down into Africa. When I lived in Ethiopia, the Great Rift Valley runs through Ethiopia, and I spent some time uh, outside the city. I lived in the capital city, but I spent some time outside the capital city and was able to visit a, a volcano crater that is now filled with a lake, and it's in the Great Rift Valley. And as the sun started going down that night, a friend of mine and I were out on a canoe, and this really calm body of water be became very rough, and we struggled to get back in and dock the canoe where we had left from a little bit ago. That The area is prone to storms. It's notorious for storms. What we see from this passage, Jesus says, let us go to the other side, initiates the trip, orders the storm. The servants of Christ, those that are closest to him, those that he would call his friends, none of them are exempt from life storms. That includes us. These disciples were following Jesus with their lives. They loved Christ. They were seeking to obey his commands. They spent day after day with him, and yet even they are not spared the danger and trouble of the sea. However, even though we know that life is going to be difficult, and some of us have lived through trials and difficulties, do we not still respond with shock and sometimes even disgust that we would face difficulties in life? Because we think we deserve better. Trusting in Christ does not guarantee that our journey to heaven will be smooth and easy. In fact, it might guarantee that it won't be smooth and easy. Free pardon from sin, that's guaranteed. Full forgiveness, absolutely guaranteed. Grace all along the way, guaranteed. Glory in the end, guaranteed. They are promised. You know what's not promised? Gentle winds and smooth seas. Not a single time. In fact, Peter, who would have been on the boat that evening, learned a very good storm theology. And three decades later would write, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Peter was surprised on this night. But he learned not to be. And he writes to original recipients three decades later, and us as well, to say, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It comes upon you. For your testing. Peter learned something that night. As though some strange thing. Don't be surprised as if it's some strange thing that's happening to you. Strange things don't happen in a world that is ruled by a sovereign God. It's providential. Remember, Jesus said, let's go across. Jesus is the author of the weather. He's organized and orchestrated this for the good of his people. 
to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, to continue with Peter's storm theology, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. The storms of life that you and I face are what God uses to wean us from our infatuation with the world. The difficulties that we face reveal our weaknesses and they expose our need of him. The troubles in this life, the storms of this life, purify our affections for Christ, making us long for heaven. So many old writers understand this and write about it. I'm going Let's look together. If you have a hymnal, turn to hymn 732. I'm not sure if this is one that you all sing, that you'll be familiar with. You will know the author. John Newton, the converted former slave trader, most famous for Amazing Grace. You would think someone who was converted from trading slaves, being in the slave trade, would just be content with that. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm okay, but that wasn't true with John Newton. He longed to be more like Christ. And this hymn really exposes very well what we see happening to the disciples here on the boat on the stormy seas. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. So far, so good, right? We all want that. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. With his own hand. Jesus initiated the trip and ordered the weather. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? The disciples on the boat thought they were about to die. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. The storms of life, the difficulties that we face, they are ordained and orchestrated and structured by God through fingers and hands of love in order that we might get over our dependency on the world, our infatuation with the world, that they might reveal and expose our weakness and our need of him and make us long for heaven, purifying our affections for Jesus. There arose, verse 37, and there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up, seemingly out of nowhere. When Jesus says, let's go, there's no sign of a storm. They would have warned These are professional seamen. They would have warned against traveling in that kind of a situation. It was a dramatic storm. In fact, in Matthew's version, he uses the word seismic. It's a sea quake. Things are shaking. The Sea of Galilee, I mentioned already, is notorious for this. In fact, in 1992, 
which seems like just a few years ago for some of us, waves on the Sea of Galilee were recorded at 10 feet during a storm. This is a lake. Most of us haven't seen 10-foot waves at the ocean. You can imagine this kind of storm being in a fishing boat that holds 12 or 15 people. It's a sailboat, if you will, made out of wood, no doubt, crashing down in these waves, 10 foot up, 10 foot down. The, the storm came upon them suddenly, which is exactly how life happens, does it not? I mean, have any of you ever received a memo that said, next week, tragedy is going to strike? Never. They, it just suddenly comes, look, there arose a fierce gale, seemingly out of nowhere. It's the way life happens. Storms happen. Difficulties arise again and again. And Christians, since the very beginning of time, have faced trials and they have learned the benefit of them. We see it in Newton's writing that we just looked at. The very familiar quote from Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. It is God who is in control. He is sovereignly orchestrating all things. Another wonderful song that we can't find in our hymnals because it's far too modern and made for the radio and not for public singing, but wonderfully helpful by Casting Crowns, Praise You in This Storm. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say, amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand, you never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. And I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. That's the goal for us to live by in the midst of the storms of life. That's what the disciples needed. It doesn't matter if he's asleep. He's our Lord. You are who you are. No matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how high the waves crash into our lives, God is unchanging, steadfast, sure, and faithful. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. A fierce gale suddenly comes up. That's the scene here in the text. We'll continue on 38 and following the scenario. What's the big problem with the storm? Well, the problem is that Jesus was in the stern, verse 38, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, or peace, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And then Jesus said to the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus is asleep. The only time in the Bible that we see Jesus sleeping. The only mention. God doesn't sleep. He who keeps you will not slumber. Psalm 121. 
He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. But here's Jesus, fully human, truly man, not just asleep, using a cushion, a pillow. Why? Why is Jesus using a pillow to sleep? Because it's more comfortable. He's not an ascetic who refuses creature comforts. He was tired. He had been ministering all day. And following a long day of ministry, of teaching and healing, he's tired, so he sleeps. But not only is he just exhausted from ministry, he is fully trusting of his Father. And so he he knows that it's going to be okay because he can trust his Father. He initiated the trip and he ordered the storm. The only mention of Jesus sleeping, and it's during a storm. And then the accusations, or a series of three questions here are interesting to note. Do you not care that we're perishing? And then Jesus says, why are you so afraid and faithless? And then the disciples say to each other, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? But the first of those questions, do you not care that we are perishing? Let that sink in. Now, granted, they're fearing for their lives. They've never been in a storm like this. They can't imagine. They've seen Jesus accomplish miracles. right? But having a guy come down through a roof and saying, your sins are forgiven, take up your mat and go home, that's a little bit different than when your own life is at stake and you see no way out. Waking Jesus is completely understandable. It's completely expected. They're fearing imminent death. But the accusation of Jesus not caring is completely absurd. Jesus had given up eternal glory because he cared for them. Jesus had given up being at the right hand of the Father because he cared for them. Jesus had taken on humanity, enveloping glory and deity in frail humanity because he cared for them. He left the praises of angels because he cared for them. He was despised and rejected by men because he cared for them. And they startle him awake and say, do you not care that we're perishing? Of course he cares. No one has ever cared more. And we too are, we run the guilt, that we run the risk and are often guilty of responding in the same way when things are tough. Do you not care? The irony should not be lost on us that in Gethsemane, some three years later, three of these disciples that were on the boat accusing him of not caring because they're sleeping would find themselves sleeping on the eve of Christ's death after he asked them, not once, not twice, but three times, stay awake and pray. Now, waking Jesus is not a problem. I mentioned that it's understandable and expected. They should have woken him up earlier rather than relying on their own strength and trying to get the water out of the boat on their own. They were guilty of not trusting in the Lord with all their heart. They were leaning on their own understanding, and we are often guilty of not trusting in the Lord with all our heart and leaning on our own understanding and not acknowledging him in all our ways so that he will make our path straight. That's what the disciples needed to do. They needed to begin with the last question, who then is this, rather than the first question, do you not care? 
which was an accusation. Jesus, being the God-man, the most gracious and merciful and loving man to ever walk on earth, got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, he doesn't say, why did you wake me up? He doesn't say, it's going to be okay. He rebukes the wind and the sea, hush to the wind, be still to the waves. Jesus doesn't wait for the waves to stop, right? He only has to stop the wind. The waves will settle down eventually, but it would take some time, but he doesn't wait it out. He says, be still, as if he's just taking his hand and smashing it down. Clear as glass, like a mirror. He commands and it ceases immediately. The voice of the one who created the wind and the waves can also calm them with that same voice. I mentioned Psalm 107.25 earlier. Listen to the verses following that from the psalmist. For God spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose. You can almost ride the boat with the disciples as the psalmist writes this. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then, verse 28 of Psalm 107, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Silence and stillness resulted from Jesus' words, hush, be still, peace, be still. Be still, my soul, the hymn writer writes. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know. His voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. May we do well like the wind and the waves and not forget that he rules and he rules well. That the one who created the wind and the waves can calm them. The one who has created us when chaos is around and chaos is within, he can calm us with hush, be still. After rebuking the wind and rebuking the waves, he turns to his disciples in verse 40. Why are you afraid? Why do you still have no faith? The wind and the waves were not the only thing out of order that evening. They were not the only thing experienced chaos as a result of the trip that Jesus has initiated and orchestrated. This word in Verse 40, Jesus' question, why are you afraid? It is literally, why are you cowardly? Jesus is, in a very gracious way, asking him to consider, based on who they know him to be and what they've seen him do, why would they act so fearfully and so cowardly? But again, he's rebuking them, but he's rebuking them with patience. He, he makes no threat of casting them off, or he doesn't express any disgust in their fearfulness or their faithlessness. Rather, he bears with them. He, he raises them from their fear and restores their faith. 
That's why they're on this trip. That's his goal in bringing the storm in the first place, to get the fear out of them, to get the right fear in them, in order that they might have faith and increase their faith. Jesus intends to calm their fears in the same way that he calmed the wind and the waves. We could use a dose of this kind of patience when dealing with others. See it in the, in the life of Christ, the way that he deals with his disciples. Why are you afraid? Why are you fearful? Why are you acting cowardly? Do you still not believe? You can, you can hear the longing, please believe, we can hear him saying. Don't be cowards. Trust me. You can believe me. Now, some of us could use a dose of this kind of patience with others. Some of us could use a dose of this with regard to ourselves. We could be more patient with ourselves and, and not beat ourselves up in the midst of dealing with fearfulness and anxiety. We, too, can trust Christ. There's, we, we see faith and fear pitted oftentimes against each other in the Scriptures, but especially here in this passage. It's very clear that our fearfulness is directly related to our lack of faith. Faithlessness results in being fearful. Fearful of the lesser thing. If they had feared Christ sufficiently, they wouldn't have been afraid for their lives and would have woken him up earlier and asked him, pleaded with him to do something. If they had been familiar with the Psalms and known Oh, when the storms are, when the seas are stormy, cry out to God. He's in control of them, and he will save and keep his own. One of the most famous hymns that we have recorded for us was, was written in an occasion of great sorrow and grief, and you're probably familiar with it, Horatio Spafford, who wrote... Uh, a hymn that is very famous in 1871. He didn't write the hymn in 1871. He wrote it shortly after that. But Horatio Spafford had one son, and that son died at the age of four of pneumonia. Later that same year, Horatio Spafford was a businessman in Chicago area, and the great Chicago fire destroyed a large portion of his business that he had worked the entirety of his life to build. Two years after this, so four-year-old son dies, business destroyed by fire. Two years later, he sent his wife and four daughters to Europe on a ship for a summer holiday. He planned to join them later, staying back to finish up business. On the fourth day of that voyage, on the way to Europe, the ship collided with a barge. His four daughters perished at sea. Along with most of the other passengers that were on the ship, only his wife was found clinging to a board from the shipwreck. She was rescued. She sent her husband a telegram which read, saved alone. What shall I do? He boarded a ship, headed to Europe to be with his grieving wife. Four days into the voyage, the captain of the ship called to him and said, this is the place where your daughters were lost at sea. And it was there that he pulled out pen and wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, when the storms, when the seas are stormy, when life comes at you fast, when life is difficult and circumstances seem insurmountable, 
Whatever my lot, Spafford writes, God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why is it well? Because, as another verse in the hymns makes clear, because my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Spafford got four days into the voyage to be with his wife after losing his daughters, after losing his business, after losing his son, he gets to where the disciples finally are in verse 41. Who then is this? This is why the stormy seas can be sailed, because they can also be settled. Because he realized that greater is he who is for us than those who are against us. The wind and the waves were not the major issue on the Sea of Galilee that evening. The major issue that the disciples needed to face was the presence of the king. It's about him. Our primary issues are not the situations that we find ourselves in. Our primary issue is the king, Christ, with whom we have to deal with. Verse 41, again, they became very much afraid. They were fearful before. But Mark makes a point here, again, most likely using Peter's eyewitness account, literally in the original, this is megaphobia. They are very, very afraid. The disciples are more afraid after the storm has settled than while it was swirling. Why? Everything around them has been made peaceful and perfect. Yet now they are massively more fearful. Because their problem, like our problems, it's not the turmoil that's circling our lives. The biggest issue in our life is what we think about this man, this king, this Christ. When fears are swirling around us, when anxieties are surging within us, it is because we are failing to fear him, failing to fear him who loves us who will never leave us nor forsake us, who cares for us, who came to save us, who suffered for us, who bled and died for us, who was raised for us, who is seated at God's right hand for us, who intercedes for us, who is sustaining us, and who will return for us. Who then is this man? If they had begun the journey on this evening with this level of faith-producing fear, they would have not responded so wrongly when the storm began. A greater fear of Christ is the solution to settling stormy seas. Not exclaiming that Christ doesn't care, but trusting that Christ does care and believing that he cares to the degree of calming our souls and the storms of our life. Now, what are the storms of life? It's going to be different for every one of us. Most of them are measured in some way by loss or fear of loss. It could be loss of friends due to location or circumstance, loss of loved ones due to sickness or death, loss of a job, loss of career, loss of hope. No matter the loss, no matter the storm, Christ controls it. He initiated the trip. He ordered the weather. He controls it all. When it begins and when it ends, he is providentially 
orchestrating all things and doing so for the good of every one of his children. Now, I mentioned that we would come back to this little phrase in verse 36. And other boats were with him. It wasn't just one boat on the stormy seas that evening. Consider how much these other boats benefited from being close to Jesus and his people. But also take note of what is said about all these other boats. Did you notice in the reading everything that's said about these other boats? There's nothing said about them. Nothing at all. Oh, that we would worry less about all the other boats and how they're handling the storms. And that we would be enamored and content with the Savior being in our boat. That we would be happy with Him. That we would run again and again to Him, trusting in Him wholly and fully. Asking, but not just asking, answering the question, who then is this man? I'll close with a brief picture, a couple of pictures from Scripture to try to wrap up the whole idea. Isaiah 17, 12, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waves. You can have that picture in your mind. Add to that picture Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You have that picture in mind. And now picture John the Apostle, a throne was standing in heaven, Revelation 4. And one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center, around the throne, and John says he... He sees and hears the ceaseless worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. They are worshiping him because he took the rumbling of the mighty waves and the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of the nations and the uproar of many peoples and the wicked tossing of the sea and the waters tossing up refuse and mud because there is no peace for the wicked. And he made it like a sea of glass, like crystal. And it won't happen today, and it won't happen tomorrow. But if Christ is in our life, if he is in the boat using the picture that's here in the scripture, we can trust him, we can call out to him. We can trust that he intends good for every one of his people, even us, especially us. May God help us to have this kind of confidence, what the disciples had at the end of that trip, that he'll keep us from being fearful like they were at the beginning. And he'll help us to say, who then is this? Rather than, do you not care? Let's pray. 
Our Lord and our God, we thank you and you alone for your word that you have preserved it for us, provided it to us. We pray that you would use the truth contained in it to encourage our hearts, that we might find all our hope and satisfaction in Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. God, we pray that you would impress on our hearts and our lives the truths contained in Scripture as they are in Jesus, that we might be a people who hope fully in you, who trust you more readily, who ask, who then is this man? That we might be, God, will you make us in an increasing fashion more enamored with Jesus Christ and help us to pursue him, seeking to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that we might be conformed into his likeness until that day when we see him and are made like him. Hear us, we pray in Christ's name.